Welcome to Season 5 of Engineering Heroes, a podcast that continues to present the new dawn of engineering challenges. My name is Melanie and my co-host and our podcast resident engineer joining me in a minute is Dominic. We're kicking off Season 5 with a focus on World Engineering Day, which is on the 4th of March. This special day is to celebrate all things engineering and to start discussions in the engineer's role in ensuring a sustainable future for all. For the first six episodes of this Season 5, Dom and I are going to be talking to a bunch of engineers from around Australia about their specific work in ensuring a healthy planet. Our guest today isn't a stranger to this podcast. We actually interviewed him in the early days of the show, back when it was Beer with an Engineer. A few things have changed since those days, though. Our guest is now the Principal Advisor of Brinson & Associates, an organisation that supports organisations to develop strategies for innovative, technology-driven sectors. He's also a non-executive director of a construction technology company and the founder and CEO of Greener Technologies and Solar Robotics. His previous roles include the CEO of the Warren Centre for Advanced Engineering at the University of Sydney, and he was the Solar Energy Alliances Manager for Dow Corning, a technology supplier to robotics and solar energy partners. In this role, he invented, designed, constructed and managed major silicon facilities in the US, Europe and Asia. Joining us today on Engineering Heroes is Ashley Brinson. Now a little bit about Ashley, in case you didn't catch him way back in Season 1, Episode 17. Ashley was born in Georgia, USA, but has been residing in Australia since 2012. He was inspired to become an engineer because, as a five-year-old, he received a book on inventions and science from his dad. My memory of Ashley talking about receiving this book from his dad was that it was really special to him and he really reflected upon that moment with a, a special fondness. Now, since that time, he has gained his engineering degree at Georgia Tech. He's got an MBA from Rutgers University and a law degree from Sydney Uni. We asked to speak to Ashley again because he was asked by EA's magazine, Create, to write a short essay for World Engineering Day to discuss the topic of the environment. This article is going to be available in the March edition of the Create magazine. So if you haven't already, go and check it out. First thing I wanted to ask, Ashley, just where are you at at the moment? Why has Create asked you specifically to write an article about the environment? Well, look, I'm working on a couple of projects right now that have a strong connection to the environment. I have a consultancy, Brunson Associates Propriety Limited. We're doing some consulting with the New South Wales Smart Sensor Network. They've just completed a project with Sydney Water to conserve water, uh, water leaks from pipes. Uh, that's a big project for them. And we're working with the International Copper Association on how we can create a zero emission copper mine of the future. And that's also got a water theme on it, how to make water efficiency in uh, copper mining. And uh, copper is really essential to create the copper wind turbines, the solar panels that, that have a lot of copper in them and the copper that's in an electric vehicle, all the motors and charging stations and all of that. So all of that has an environmental connection to it. I'm a passionate supporter of the, the circular economy and also have some endeavors ongoing now with a startup company and, and greener technologies. You've definitely got your fingers in a lot of pies there for engineering for the environment. Can you tell us a little bit about the article? Uh, sure. I had a little conversation with a fellow from EA, and 
we chatted and he was asking me about what is the circular economy. And I, I drew the analogy that in 2020, 2021, we've all been locked into our homes for some period of time. And then if you could imagine as an analogy, if you're locked into one room of your home for a long period of time, and yet everything that came into that room had to stay in that room for a long period of time. That's sort of an idea about what the circular economy might be. You know, you're in the room, we're on a, a mobile phone and a laptop right now. I need, I need energy. So there's an energy demand there. Uh, we all need clean water to survive and, and um, that's got to come into the room. If you need food, you call up and, and order some food, some takeout food delivered to your home. It comes in a plastic container. All of that is in the room. And over a period of time, you, you find out that the plastic containers that are collecting in the room, there's no place to put that. The food waste, there's no place to put that. And all of the, uh, the sort of the triangle of, of energy demand, uh, the, the way that we manage our food and our waste and, and then this accumulation of unrecyclable materials, unusable residue that's left over, that, that's sort of an idea about the challenges that we face on this planet. So how's recycling different to the circular economy? Recycling is a cornerstone of the circular economy, but if we were living in sort of a perfect ideal world, then the goods and materials that we're using wouldn't create waste, and that waste wouldn't be headed to landfill, and you wouldn't need to separate things out and remake them into something new. Um, a lot of the goods, a lot of the items that we purchase and that we use on a regular basis these days, unfortunately, they don't have a long life in the economy. And then perhaps our parents, our grandparents, some generations ago, we didn't have plastic bottles and you didn't really even need a plastic bottle. So a lot of these items are just around for convenience and they have been put into the economy for economic reasons uh, that don't have anything to do with the cost of uh, disposing of the material or, or repurposing, cleaning them out, putting them back into service. So recycling is sort of the opportunity of, of last resort. It's better than landfilling waste or in Europe incinerating that waste, um, but it would be better if we designed out those materials rather than take the energy and the um, effort to recycle them if we just designed them out. Um, things like um, plastic cutlery that gets thrown away, you know, you use it for a few minutes and throw it away. It would be better to have durable dishes, durable cups. A water bottle is a good example. Uh, you know, a stainless steel water bottle that stays in the economy for, for 10 years, maybe. That, that's a better example than a throwaway item that's only there and being used perhaps for a few minutes while you're drinking water from it. Don't get me wrong, recycling is essential. It's necessary, but it's not nearly sufficient for the size of the problem that we've got of materials being created, people purchasing those materials, using them for a very short period of time, and then they have no use whatsoever. So recycling is, is a, um, a necessary part, but it's not nearly enough. Engineers are there to design great things. And part of the circular economy is how do we design waste out? Take an automobile as an example. How do we design an automobile so that it comes out of the factory and goes into service for 10, 15 years, maybe goes into service for 20, 25 years, and then it comes out of service for a period of time, it gets sort of taken apart, rebuilt, put back together, and goes back into service for another 20, 25 years. How could we create goods that have almost permanent enduring value 
and can be remanufactured through many, many cycles without creating a big junkyard heap at the end. That, that, that's the idea of the circular economy. And as engineers, if we can preferentially choose designs that have the capability of, of zero carbon emission, zero environmental damage, and very long enduring value, uh, frequently the overall lifetime economics of that is, is cheaper than buying something, using it for a few minutes, and then disposing of it and having to, to landfill it and having it leave the economy. So engineers obviously have a fairly strong role in making sure that their designs take that into consideration, but are there other considerations for engineers and what they should be doing in regards to creating a healthier planet? I think understanding the unrealized costs and the unrealized wastes that are there. So, you know, if if carbon dioxide comes out the, the tailpipe of a fossil fuel-driven automobile, it doesn't actually cost anything to dispose of that carbon dioxide. And yet it goes up into the atmosphere, it contributes to global warming, and our children and our grandchildren, and I mean, for long periods of time, that carbon dioxide is going to be in the atmosphere. And so we're actually using resources for our personal convenience today without considering in and factoring in the cost of actually dealing with the garbage we're creating and passing that problem on to people that are coming after us. That's a good example of it. Are you seeing that there's actually a demand, though, to consider the environment at the very early stages, at that design stage. It feels like it's very much a case of the user recycling, the user puts it away, it's not their problem, they don't think about it and then someone else worries about it. But if I'm creating a new product to market, should the entire life cycle of that product be taken into consideration from the very beginning? Absolutely, the life cycle analysis, the life cycle footprint of the choices that we make as consumers, we have to factor that in. And consumers bear a certain amount of responsibility, but I'd say that the engineers bear an even greater amount of responsibility because at the core, engineers are scientists. We have to understand what the science is. We have to apply science in a pragmatic way to build the world around us that we want to live in. And we've got to make selections on behalf sometimes of consumers and guide them towards solutions that are fit for purpose, that are pragmatic and economical, but that don't leave a legacy behind them that will harm future generations or will harm the animals and plants around us in the environment. You know, an example of that might be looking at toxic chemical residues that are still in Sydney Harbor between sort of Sydney Olympic Park region and the Sydney Harbor Bridge. I think it's uh, PCBs, heavy metals that are in the silt on the bottom of the harbor. You know, those materials are going to be there for many, many years to come. And you see the signs, they don't, don't eat the fish. If you catch fish here, maybe you can eat 100 grams a year of this fish, you know, some, some small amount of, of fish. But that was an operating problem that was introduced by engineers. And as engineers, now that we know that those sorts of problems exist, we have to design them out and we have to prevent those kinds of long-term consequences from our work from showing up around us. You know, there are a lot of examples from the 1980s, 1990s that are behind us in history now. So you can look at the chlorofluorocarbons, 
um, all of the hairspray that my mother sprayed on her hair in the 1950s and 1960s, it's still in the environment, right? And it has burned a hole in the ozone layer. The countries of the world got together and they said, hey, we know that it's invisible. We know that the hairspray that gets sprayed in America or in Germany actually drifts down and uh, destroys the ozone. Uh, living in the Southern Hemisphere now, you know, I get sunburned here much faster than I did in other places around the world where I live. And so the release of that material in one country actually affects the health of people in another country. And so, you know, the civilized uh, countries of the world got together and they phased out chlorofluorocarbons. In the, in the same way, in Europe, some decades ago, a ton of coal that was burned in country A had a certain amount of sulfur in it. The sulfur went up in the atmosphere, it turned into sulfuric acid, and it dropped on a town in country B. And so even though the environmental uh, activity was happening across a border, the effects were felt by people in another country. And so the countries got together and they decided to do something about um, acid rain, and there was a phase out of high sulfur hydrocarbons, and sulfur has been removed from those fuels. And that was all done by international treaties. And we, we see the same thing today with the Paris Accord and the commitments that countries have made around the world about reducing carbon emissions. It is exactly the same. It's the same sort of path as the chlorofluorocarbons, it's the same sort of path as a sulfuric acid in the, in the atmosphere and acid rain. You know, mankind got together and said, we know this isn't good. We've got to phase it out. This one's a little bit more close to home because so many economies around the world are dependent on taking fossil fuels out of the earth and, and selling them for fuel. And, and of course, um, our energy systems aren't nearly designed to cope with changing over to new energy forms yet. Engineers are in the front position there to make those changes and to lead some of the public discussion, I feel, to communicate the science and to explain that even though it's a lot of work to build new energy systems, hey, those are some jobs to be had in the, in the post-corona days of 2021, 2022. There's a lot of energy infrastructure to be redesigned and rebuilt, and the engineers will be right there on the front row leading that work. So there has been, in the past, obviously, a lot of government interaction in regards to issues with acid rain and CFCs and, and the like. Are you seeing that governments are starting to push manufacturing in regards to circular the circular economy side of things in order for them to think about their products not just from a recycling aspect but actually the sort of whole of life so if you look in europe and if you look in california if you look in germany as an example there are leading engineering consumer goods companies like mercedes i saw an advertisement came through the social media feed it was a, um, I think the automobile was called EQ, so it was an electric vehicle. And underneath it had how many grams of CO2 per kilometer that you're going to travel or per 100 kilometers. That's a number. You can see that on your diesel automobile. You can see that on your petrol-driven automobile. This one had a big zero on it because it was an EV. And then the next number was how many kilometers could you travel per kilowatt hour of charge from the charging station. And that was another statistic that was there. So in Germany and in California, the, the governments are changing the rules for how you advertise a good that's sold to consumers. 
consumers are becoming uh, aware that those carbon emissions are hurting the Great Barrier Reef, so we want to reduce our carbon emissions. And there's sort of a symbiotic market being created of government telling people, you know, it's like looking at the nutrition labels on food. You know, that's got so many grams of sugar, there's so many calories or kilojoules. It's not healthy for my body. I don't want to eat that. I choose not to eat that food. I choose to eat this healthier food in the same way as the engineered items and the engineered consumer goods are labeled appropriately, then consumers are going to gravitate towards those goods that are maybe better for the health of the, of the planet. And then that takes a lot of education and a lot of rule setting in a way to communicate to people. And it also takes having truthful science communicated to people so that they understand uh, that this is a real issue. It's not fake news. It's not a conspiracy or a hoax. It really is all of our health and the health of our children. If planetary warming exceeds 1.5, 2 degrees, 3 degrees, really bad things happen. Uh, you know, we'll lose the Great Barrier Reef if action isn't taken very uh, aggressively. And it may not be confined to one nation. Uh, it has to be a collective action of all 7 billion people on the planet. And then, you know, maybe we get to keep our great ecological treasures of the world. And, and if, if we sleep through this next 10 years, it's really irreversible. There's no time to waste. We've got to get acting now. This whole episode that we're doing and the whole series, little mini series I'm doing is all around World Engineering Day. And I just wanted to ask, just to wrap up, why do you think World Engineering Day is so important? Well, it's, it's an opportunity to look as engineers, as designers of the built environment around us. People of the world have gotten together and they have looked at the things that they want. They've given us a, a menu called the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Here are 17 things we want. A, could you engineers and could you policymakers go deliver us clean water? Could you give us decent jobs? Could you help us with gender equity? You know, that's a menu of action for all of us on the planet. But engineers can take their mental skills and their design creative prowess, and they can actually deliver those goals through the designs that they implement and the great things that engineers are building. So I think it's a good day for engineers to reflect on what it is our neighbors are asking us to design and to build, and then to put our mental power towards delivering what people are asking for. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've really enjoyed the conversations and the learning a lot more about how countries can come together or countries have to come together to ensure the future health of our planet. Thanks for that. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Engineering Heroes as we present the new dawn of engineering challenges for Engineers Australia. You can view the show notes or more about our podcast by visiting our website, www.engineeringheroes.com.au. Be sure to mark the 4th of March in your diary and celebrate World Engineering Day by doing something special or something really extraordinary. We look forward to you joining us next week when we bring you another interview with one of our engineering champions.